Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. This weekend, actually this past week, there were a lot of new movies that came out, and I wanted to review all of them for you on this show. I'm reviewing a lot of the major ones, including the one big movie that came out in theaters this past weekend, but I didn't get to all of them, unfortunately. There are some like uh, Jerry and Marge Go Large and Spiderhead that I wanted to see this week, and maybe, just maybe, I'll see them for you next week. But the three that I'm reviewing for you this week all came out uh, this past week, so they are brand new to you and me. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Lightyear, which is based on the Toy Story character Buzz Lightyear, and it is a spinoff of the Toy Story film series serving as an origin story for the fictional test pilot slash astronaut character uh, after whom the Buzz Lightyear toy action figure featured in the main uh, films was inspired. And this film is based on an original story by Jason Headley and Angus McLean. And Angus McLean actually directed this movie, and it is his first film that he, a first feature film that he has directed himself. He also was co director on Finding Dory, which was the sequel to Finding Nemo, which did not get nominated for Best animated feature at the Academy Awards in 2017, and that was a missed opportunity. But the truth is that Angus McLean has been actively involved in Pixar as um, part of the animation department, and as well as some other side jobs too, for example, as a voice actor, for quite some time. He actually got his start in the animation department of the movie Cats Don't Dance, which came out in 1997. It's not a Disney Pixar film. It actually was released by Warner Brothers, and it was a 2D animated film. And it didn't do especially well at the box office when it came out, but eventually it became a bigger film and somewhat of a cult classic today. But he also served as an animator on such Pixar films as A Bug's Life, Toy Story 2, Monsters Incorporated, Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, and the list goes on. I won't list them all for you, but what I will say is that he has had extensive experience as an animator within Pixar, as well as some other studios, but mainly Pixar. So this is his first time in the director's chair, and Lightyear is frankly not the best Disney Pixar film, but... It is pretty good, and I will let you know a little bit more about it right now. So, Lightyear is telling the story and the mythos of the character of Buzz Lightyear. As a matter of fact, it starts off with a written prologue that says that the film that we are about to see was actually the favorite film of a young Andy Davis. Who is Andy Davis? Well, Andy Davis is Andy the kid from the Toy Story films, who later grows up and gives his toys away. That happens in Toy Story 3. A little bit of a spoiler, but just to give you some context. So anyway, Andy saw this film when he was a kid, and for that reason, 
he really wanted the Buzz Lightyear toy that he ultimately received on his birthday in the original Toy Story movie. So as I was watching the film, I was thinking to myself, if I were eight or nine years old, presumably around the same age that Andy was in the original Toy Story movie, if I were to watch this film, would I want to get the Buzz Lightyear action figure? And more specifically, does this seem like a film that would come out in the 80s or 90s? And, well, the answer to the second question is maybe. The answer to the first question is I don't exactly know because Lightyear is definitely a film that is family-friendly, but would kids want to go out and buy a Buzz Lightyear action figure based on the character in the film? Well, I'll let you know. You could probably tell that my answer is, is no to that question, but... Let me just give you a little bit more context. So, we are introduced to Buzz Lightyear in this movie, who is voiced not by Tim Allen, like he was in the four Toy Story films, as well as the several Toy Story shorts. Instead, he's voiced by Chris Evans. And this is technically the third time that Chris Evans has played, I guess what you would call a superhero. Of course, he played the Human Torch, um, a.k.a. Johnny Blaze, in the first two commercially released Fantastic Four films. And, of course, he also played Captain America in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But anyway, here he is playing the voice of Buzz Lightyear. And to Chris Evans' credit, he does pretty well doing an original take on Buzz Lightyear. He doesn't do an imitation of Tim Allen, because I think that Tim Allen brought sort of a caricature of a character to Buzz Lightyear when he was playing him in the Toy Story movies, and for good reason, because the action figure is meant to be a caricature of the character on which Buzz Lightyear is based. He's not supposed to be Buzz Lightyear himself. So I think Chris Evans is good at giving Buzz Lightyear a little bit more grounded context. But in this movie, Lightyear, which is supposed to be somewhat of a prequel and a spinoff to Toy Story, Buzz Lightyear is, as you might guess, a space ranger in Star Command, and we are first introduced to him giving his star log, or something similar to that, which is mainly him opening his sleeve and talking to himself, which is immediately brought to the attention of the audience by his commanding officer and his best friend, Alicia Hawthorne, who is voiced in this movie by Uzo Aduba, who's better known as Crazy Eyes from Orange is the New Black. But she is a very talented actress, and as this movie shows, she's also a very talented voice actress. But anyway, we're introduced to the two of them as they explore the habitable planet Takani Prime with also a new recruit named Feathering Hamstan. Very long name, I know, but he's not in the movie for very long. So they are forced to retreat to their exploration vessel after discovering that the planet hosts hostile life forms. But when Buzz Lightyear is attempting to leave the planet, he actually damages the vessel as he is skyrocketing out of there. And it forces his crew to evacuate in order to conduct repairs and continue their journey. One year later, the crew has constructed a nascent colony along with the necessary infrastructure to conduct repairs. And Buzz himself volunteers to test hyperspace fuel, which is a key component of the repairs. But 
what he's supposed to do is he is supposed to get into a jet plane, which actually looks very similar to the Navy jets in the Top Gun movies. And given the fact that Top Gun Maverick came out a few weeks ago, this immediately reminded me of Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick, not just because there was a Maverick uh, jet engine pilot who has feels the need for speed, but also because he volunteers and he somewhat goes against the orders of his commanding officer. His commanding officer tells him to get out in space, go out there for four minutes, and then come right back as he's testing this hyperspace fuel. But as he returns to Takani Prime, he actually finds out that four years has passed, and even though he hasn't changed, his commanding officer, Alicia Hawthorne, has. For example, she is engaged to a woman, I might add, which I don't think would happen in a movie in the ni- that was presumably made in the 90s that was geared towards children. Nowadays, it's not that big a deal because gay marriage has been uh, is legal now and probably will be for the next 100 years if that uh probably more than that but also people in general were a lot more homophobic in the early 90s than they are now but i guess that's not not exactly a grievance i commend disney for incorporating gay characters into their movies my Um, thing is it probably wouldn't happen in a nineties film, but it works. I think in terms of story for this film, but buzz Lightyear, getting back to him is undeterred about testing this hyperspace fuel. So he goes into space again and again. And every time he comes back four years have passed. And what happens is his commanding officer, Alicia Hawthorne, is on her deathbed by the time he comes back. And it actually turns into probably one of the more touching aspects of the film. And it actually reminded me very much about of the very beginning of the movie Up. And while this scene didn't make me cry, it did uh, make me feel sad. So so to this movie's credit, it, it definitely works in that regard. But eventually... After Buzz Lightyear goes on more and more missions to test his hyperspace fuel, he's actually greatly assisted by a robotic cat named Socks, who's voiced by Peter Sohn, who immediately reminded me of Doug the Dog from Up. So the fact that I can easily make comparisons with with this film to other arguably better Disney Pixar films doesn't bode especially well for this film, but actually Socks does serve as a pretty good character. Uh, Socks, the robotic cat, is very smart, and he also has some moments where he is very uh, surprising or surprisingly funny as a character as well. But during Buzz Lightyear's last deep space mission, he comes back and he finds that Alicia Hawthorne's granddaughter, Izzy Hawthorne, who's voiced by a very talented actress, Kiki Palmer, who's not a household name yet, but she probably should be by now. But she, uh, he actually finds that his command unit has basically been defeated by the Emperor Zorg, who was introduced 
in Toy Story 2, and that there is a ragtag team of misfits who are out to fight Zorg and his robot minions. There's Izzy, who I said was voiced by uh, Kiki Palmer. There's also a very old woman uh, who's still in that uh, space armor uniform named Darby Steele, who's voiced by Dale uh, Sulace. And also another somewhat scared cadet by the name of Mo Morrison, who's voiced by New Zealand actor and director and Academy Award winner Taika YTT. So Buzz Lightyear is obviously the most experienced in terms of space flight and also military combat experience. And he is very reluctant, understandably, to take these three under his wing. And, of course, when he starts to do things alone, including fighting Zerg himself, I could obviously tell that they were going for a lesson about not doing things alone and asking your friends or anybody who is willing to help you for help. But that's not the problem I have with the story. My biggest problem with Lightyear was when... Zerg was revealed to be a certain character. Now, Zerg is voiced by James Brolin, who is not only a very good actor, he's also, like Kiki Palmer, a very good voice actor. But the twist behind who Zerg is felt kind of weak to me. And I felt like I had seen it done in better films, particularly ones about time travel. And getting back to the subject about... The, the beginning prologue where they told us that a young Andy saw this film, loved it, and really wanted to buy Buzz Lightyear as a result. I don't think that young Andy back in the early 90s would necessarily be intrigued or swayed by this plot twist with the Emperor Zerg. But then again, he doesn't buy the toy of the Emperor Zerg. He buys the one of Buzz Lightyear. But what really disappointed me about the Buzz Lightyear character was not Chris Evans playing him in this movie. He did a great job. What disappointed me was that one of the prominent themes in the original Toy Story was that, A, the Buzz Lightyear toy was convinced he was a space ranger, not a toy, and second, he was convinced he could fly. So you would presume that the Buzz Lightyear in this movie could fly. He flies jets like Maverick does in Top Gun, but he doesn't fly with his own suit, which looks identical to the one in the Toy Story movie, which it should, but he doesn't bring out his wings, and he and the, and the climax of the movie should have been him flying with his space uniform, which he should do, especially on a habitable planet like Takani Prime, But he doesn't do that. And that, to me, was probably one of the most disappointing aspects of this film. Does it mean that it's the worst Toy Story movie? Or rather, the worst Disney Pixar film? Well, the worst Toy Story movie, I think if you put it in the Toy Story canon, yeah, it probably would be. But saying that Lightyear is the worst of the Toy Story movies is like calling Ringo the worst Beatle. It's not a terrible movie, but... It did disappoint me because Buzz Lightyear, I think, should have flown with just his spacesuit. But hopefully he will get to do that in the sequel. And even though this movie did have some very good characters, I especially loved 
Buzz Lightyear, his interpretation by Chris Evans. I loved the characters of Alicia Hawthorne and Izzy Hawthorne, especially Izzy grounding this movie like she does. But I wanted Buzz Lightyear to do more, and I also wanted him to take on a a more formidable villain than Zerg ultimately turns out to be. Instead, Zerg comes off as a second-rate Darth Vader, and that really doesn't bode very well for this story. However, this movie is very well animated. I think that it's... It doesn't exactly shoot for the stars, but I hope it does in the sequel, which is why I give Lightyear my rating of a checkout. It's not the best of the Toy Story movies. In fact, it's probably, it comes in fifth. It's definitely not one of the best of the Disney Pixar films, but I do think that it did take a chance with a movie that's not all comic relief. But again, it goes back to that question If I were Andy's age and I were to have seen this film in the early 90s, would I want to go out and buy the Buzz Lightyear toy? My guess is probably not. But then again, who knows how many movies the character of Andy has seen as opposed to me because I've seen a ton of films. Plus, I'm a guy in my late 30s who is who has seen so many films, more than probably about 99% of the people that I've seen. But Buzz Lightyear, or rather the movie Lightyear, was not as good as it could have been. But I do think that a sequel, especially with the top-notch animation that this one has, could add more to the Lightyear mythos than this movie does. And I think the movie is good enough to deserve a sequel and hopefully it gets one that's better than this. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Good Luck to You, Leo Grande. This is a film that is brought to you by Fox Searchlight Pictures, which is actually now owned by Disney and is one of the Disney's branches along with Miramax, Touchstone, and Hollywood Pictures, I think just to name some of them, that are that is ways or rather are Disney branches so that Disney is able to release R rated movies and good luck to you. Leo Grande is indeed rated R. I don't know if it is out in theaters. If it is out in theaters, it is in select theaters. Oh, actually scratch that. I made a mistake. It is only available to view on Hulu, but it could be one of those films that could be eventually released in theaters because it certainly is one of those films where you can go somewhere and sit down and have your attention solely on the screen. But it is available only on Hulu, and it came out on Hulu on June 17th, 2022. And it is directed by Sophie Hyde, and it is about a woman by the name of Nancy Stokes, who is a 55-year-old widow who is played here by Academy Award winner Emma Thompson. 
and she is yearning for some adventure, human connection, and some sex. Good sex. And this is where Words on Film gets to be a a bit more edgy, but of course, this is uh, an adult film, and understandably so, because Nancy Stokes, by being um, somebody who is lonely and is looking for good sex, she hires a prostitute by the name of Leo Grande. And he is played in this movie by Daryl McCormick, who is a man who is almost 30 years old. He was born on December 20th, 1992. And he is part, well, he is actually fully Irish because he was raised in Ireland. But his mother was Irish and his father was actually African American, or rather is because they're both still alive. So you can tell that Daryl McCormick is Irish from his accent, not necessarily by looking at him. Although Ireland has come a long way over the last few decades in being diverse. And Daryl McCormick is definitely not the first black Irishman that I've seen, but he's probably going to be one of the most well-known uh based on the success of this movie in which both he and Emma Thompson do an incredibly good job. So a little bit of background about this movie. It does take place in Great Britain, presumably in London, although it doesn't tell you exactly where the movie takes place. And one question you might be having, uh, might be asking yourself, particularly if you're American is, is prostitution illegal in the United Kingdom? And the answer to that question is no, it is not illegal, or rather, it is legal. There are related activities to prostitution that are illegal in the UK. For example, you can't solicit prostitution in a public place. And also, pimping and curb crawling. Uh, Curb crawling, I think, is when a prostitute comes to you right next to your car and asks you if you want a date. That is unlawful. But prostitution itself is not illegal in the United Kingdom. It is illegal in most of the United States, but I think that is actually a state issue because in Nevada, prostitution is legal, but in most other states, it isn't. So when this movie first starts, Emma Thompson is a nervous wreck. And the reason she's a nervous wreck is not because prostitution is illegal. It's just that she, her husband died two years earlier, and she has not had intimate relations with another man. And Daryl McCormick as Leo Grande is very charming, very smart, and he's very good at what he does. Um, <laughs> not just the sex part, but also his making his clientele feel particularly comfortable. And I think that the chemistry between Daryl McCormick and Emma Thompson is really good and really believable. And I'm not just talking uh, about the sexual chemistry. I'm also talking about Emma Thompson herself being very reluctant to be in a sexual relationship with this Leo Grande character. And it's she's not nervous, as I said, because prostitution is illegal. I think she's very introverted and self-conscious and it's it's very believable her to feel this way particularly given her history and good luck to you leo grande is a movie that takes place almost entirely in a hotel room and it takes place over 
the course of three or four days. And very much like my dinner with Andre, the movie is mostly Emma Thompson and Daryl McCormick talking uh, alongside, or rather, to one another. And it's the exchange of the both of them. Although there is a lot more going on in this film than my dinner with Andre. Because my dinner with Andre was just two people sitting at a restaurant table talking about philosophy. And, well, maybe a little bit of a spoiler alert. Emma Thompson, Daryl McCormick, as you might expect, since Leo Grande is a male prostitute, don't, don't just talk. They do other things. But they mostly just talk. But it's not about philosophy or about the grand scheme of things. It's also about their lives. And even though, <clears throat> excuse me, hang on. <clears throat> That's something I may edit out of the podcast, but who knows. But even though Leo Grande is there for a particular reason, it's, <laughs> and the, the, the conversation that Leo Grande and Nancy Stokes have is not just about sex. They do have very interesting conversations, and there's also a dynamic that goes on between the two of them that makes actually the sex part arguably not the most interesting thing about the film. It is rated R mainly for its sexual content because I actually don't think the language is really all that profane or all that inappropriate for children, but very much like Pretty Woman, the subject matter is certainly not for families, let alone children, as you might expect. But the sexiest part of this film is actually not the sex itself, which I think is commendable for both Emma Thompson, who has had extensive experience over the last 40 years as an actress, and Daryl McCormick, who's had a good amount of experience as an actor, both on stage and on screen, for the the time he's been acting. He's acted in Shakespeare. Uh, For example, he's been Romeo in Romeo and Juliet, and he's been Othello, which is not too surprising given the way he looks. But the the two of them are really great together. I don't, again, oh man, Uh, my esophagus. Um, Emma, I don't know if this is Emma Thompson's best performance, but it is one of her best. And I think it could be considered a breakthrough role for Daryl McCormick himself. The two of them work really well together through the good times in which they communicate and some of the bad times that came up that come up. And as I was watching this, I was thinking that this could be a one act play. But it actually is not based on a play, even though the setting of a hotel room would make a perfect basis for a one-act play or even just a black box theater play. But this is an original movie written by uh, Katie Brand. And as I said, the director of the movie is Sophie Hyde, who is an Australian director. And amongst the projects that she has directed... She also directed another film called Animals that came out in 2019, and I don't think I've seen that film. Uh, Actually confirmed, I have not. But this is probably her breakthrough as a director, even though this is, amongst the projects that she has directed, her third feature film after Animals and 52 Tuesdays, the latter of which sounds like an amazing 
uh, project. But good luck to you, Leo Grande is certainly a breakthrough for director Sophie Hyde and Daryl McCormick, who had me charmed even as a heterosexual man. I'll tell you that. Uh, but Emma Thompson, of course, grounded this film really well. And most importantly, the chemistry between Emma Thompson and Daryl McCormick is undeniable, both during their most intimate scenes and also scenes where there is a falling out between the two of them without giving too much away, which is why good luck to you, Leo Grande gets my rating of a knockout. And it's a film that is only available on Hulu, but I do feel like this film probably would be best experienced in a movie theater, especially when you don't have the distractions that you do in your own home. But then again, I'm not against streaming, of course. I see lots of films on streaming. In fact, most of the films that I've seen over the last three years have been on streaming because I don't really have a choice. But this is good for this is a good film for a Saturday night or a Sunday night in, and it's certainly made for adults, particularly those that are 25 or above. And I really love this movie, and I highly recommend it. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Halftime. This is a documentary that was released on Netflix on June 14th, 2022. And even though you won't necessarily get the immediate idea that this is a documentary about a certain celebrity that is not uh, related to sports, uh, it might surprise you that this movie is about Jennifer Lopez. And what does halftime have to do with uh, Jennifer Lopez? Well, even though some people might have forgotten about this by now, Jennifer Lopez was the headliner for the 2020 Super Bowl halftime show. She wasn't the only person who performed there. She also performed alongside Shakira, but... Both Jennifer Lopez and Shakira added themselves to the roster of female singers who put on amazing halftime shows. So they added themselves to the legacies of Madonna, Lady Gaga, Katy Perry, and Beyonce, the latter of whom put on not just one great halftime show back in 2013, but two. In fact, the headliner for the second show in which Beyonce performed was Coldplay, but Coldplay adds themselves to the roster of male musical artists like Maroon 5, Justin Timberlake, and The Weeknd as male artists who put on decidedly mediocre halftime shows during their respective Super Bowls. So the women over the last 10 years really brought their A-game to the Super Bowl halftime shows, and the men, with the primary exception of Bruno Mars, did not. Although, this last halftime show, I thought Dr. Dre, Eminem, and Snoop Dogg did very well, but they were also joined by Mary J. Blige, who did an amazing job. But from 2012 to... 
2021, the women were unquestionably the best halftime uh, Super Bowl performers. And while Jennifer Lopez definitely was not the first artist, let alone the first female artist, to put on a great Super Bowl halftime show, the lead-up to this documentary, which is directed by Amanda McKelly, is the halftime show itself. And it also takes into account Jennifer Lopez's career as a movie actress as well as a singer and a dancer. And Jennifer Lopez is definitely one of the biggest triple threats in Hollywood today. But the movie also focuses on her making an unlikely comeback around 2019 or 2020, particularly when she acted in the movie Hustlers. And Hustlers was a movie I saw when it came out, but it was out uh, when Words on Film was on hiatus, and I was trying desperately to find a radio station that would pick up my show after I left Boston, Massachusetts. But the movie Hustlers was an excellent film, and Jennifer Lopez in the film was fantastic. And I wish I could gush about her more around the time the movie came out. Constance Wu and Kiki Palmer and other uh, actresses in the film were also very good, but Jennifer Lopez was dynamite. And not just her pole dancing scenes, although those, of course, made uh, great YouTube videos later and amassed millions of watchers. And it's very understandable why. But... When Jennifer Lopez was preparing for her halftime show at the Super Bowl, it came at a pivotal moment in her career. First, there was speculation about her being nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. She was nominated for an, uh, for a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress, to which she lost to Laura Dern for uh, Marriage Story. And ultimately, you find out that she was snubbed for that uh, Oscar nomination, which I think the Oscars missed out on a huge opportunity. And as this movie demonstrates, many of the people in the press, particularly film critics, also considered Jennifer Lopez one of the biggest snubs that year. But I think the... Uh, but but I think when the halftime show uh, came on, a, a lot of critics, not just film critics, said that she probably wasn't uh, nominated for an Oscar, but she owned the Super Bowl that year, and I 100% agree. And the movie does a very good job leading up to both the halftime show and also taking you alongside Jennifer Lopez herself, getting prepared uh, for the various nominations that she received for the movie Hustlers. And this movie is more... Uh, not so much of a vanity piece as much as I would have expected. It doesn't do everything really correctly when it comes to analyzing Jennifer Lopez's life and career. It's it's not perfect in that regard and, and somewhat imbalanced when it comes to some aspects of her career that I think they could have highlighted while not taking away the dynamics of her performing in the Super Bowl halftime show. But... At the same time, it's not a vanity piece. Jennifer Lopez is the primary focus of this documentary, but she doesn't serve in any other capacity. If she served as a producer or an executive producer, 
probably then would I find that this movie is more of a vanity piece. But the truth is, Jennifer Lopez, whether you love her or you hate her, and I don't hate her, I've always admired her. Maybe she hasn't made the best movies every now and then, and maybe when she started her music career, her movies for at least four or five years were not as strong as they were before she started her music career. But I've always admired Jennifer Lopez for her work ethic. And some people were very quick to dismiss her as a diva in the worst sense of the world, but in the worst sense of the word. And maybe she also does not have the best taste in men either. But that's just my opinion outside of um, the, the realm of movies. But... I've always admired her for her work ethic and the fact that she is over the age of 50 and not only does she look amazing, but she's also turning out really quality art, um, albeit commercial art. Uh, Hustlers was an excellent film in which I thought she acted very well. Her Super Bowl halftime performance was critically lauded and... The movie also uh, deals with her uh, point of view of the way that Latin Americans, especially Mexicans, were being treated during Donald Trump's administration. And she was also going to very, I think, subtly bring some light to Mexican families that were being separated at the border because their parents were illegal, but their children were not only separated from their parents, but they were also being put in cages. And the way that the NFL handles that, which is caught on camera here, is something that will make you probably not appreciate, not the NFL itself, but the owners of certain NFL teams, and maybe even the general manager of the NFL himself, whose name I won't reveal here, but you could probably look it up. But Halftime is a documentary that I think does not perfectly uh, summarize the best of Jennifer Lopez's life and career. And there were chapters of her life that I would have liked to have seen a bit more in this film, but it does, Halftime gets my rating of a high checkout because Jennifer Lopez, again, whether you love her or you hate her, A, is a fascinating figure, and B, has certainly worked. <laughs> um, I, I'm trying not to make any references to features of Jennifer Lopez that are most well-known, but she's worked very hard to get to where she is today, and that is admirable. But halftime resisted being a basically a vanity piece. And I'm glad it wasn't. But I, I think that the the story of Jennifer Lopez could have been told using some other archive footage as well as some other candid shots a bit better. But I do think that halftime is a, a documentary from which people can learn a lot about her but also what it takes to really make it in this industry and have the staying power that Jennifer Lopez does, which is honestly not easy. And for that reason, I admire Halftime, and I do think it is worth checking out.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my next segment, which is What's Coming Up Next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to be released first in theaters and then in streaming for the week of June 20th through 24th, 2022. And there are two big movies that are coming out in theaters on June 24th. The first is a movie that is called Elvis. And of course it is about the reputed king of rock and roll. And it is directed by Baz Luhrmann. So this movie may not be entirely historically accurate, but Baz Luhrmann is very good at making movies that incorporate music very well into them. He did that brilliantly with William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet back in 1996 with Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. It did upset Shakespearean scholars, particularly at the end when something happens to Romeo and Juliet that is not especially in line with how Shakespeare wrote it. But I think Everyone else, including Shakespeare scholars, did appreciate the fact that it took place in modern day and it still used the Shakespearean language. But um, it, it, it was a it was a really good interpretation of Romeo and Juliet, and I still think it's it stands the test of time. Twenty six years later, he also did Moulin Rouge, which was not for everyone. It was nominated for Best Picture and other uh, various. Oscar nominations, but people either really loved it or really hated it. I'm kind of on the leaning towards love, but I didn't exactly love it, but I still appreciated it for its originality. And Boz Lerman directed some other films as well, including The Great Gatsby, where he tried to do the same thing with The Great Gatsby as Romeo and Juliet, only that The Great Gatsby took place in the 1920s, but he incorporated contemporary rap music into the film, which I didn't think exactly worked. And I think he thought that in The Great Gatsby, the most interesting parts of The Great Gatsby were the parties that Jay Gatsby threw. And those were not the most interesting parts of the story of The Great Gatsby as F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote it. But the most dramatic parts were kind of subpar, even with great actors like Leonardo DiCaprio and Carrie Mulligan and Tobey Maguire in the film uh, as well. But Boz Luhrmann took a break from films and he actually directed a really great limited miniseries on Netflix called The Get Down, which took place in New York City during the late 1970s. Now, I review movies on the show, but The Get Down was a fantastic miniseries, and it's still available for viewing on Netflix. In fact, I wish they had made more episodes of that show, and it was very critically acclaimed, but Boz Lerman stopped doing it, A, because it cost Netflix way too much money, and secondly, he wanted to move on to other projects. So one of these projects is a semi-biography about Elvis, and it details his humble childhood in uh, Tupelo, Mississippi, which is where he was raised. He was born, I believe, in Memphis, and that's ultimately where he um, got his, uh, well, he bought Graceland, and it became a shrine, and it's still a big tourist attraction to this day. I, of course, live in Nashville, which is two and a half hours north of Memphis. 
I have not gotten to see um, Graceland, but I would really love to see it someday, and I probably will this year. But this movie details Elvis from his childhood in Tupelo, Mississippi, to his rise and stardom starting in Memphis, Tennessee, and his conquering of Las Vegas, Nevada, and he becomes the first rock and roll star and changes the world with his music. Elvis in this movie is played by Austin Butler, who is an American actor, and the role of Colonel Tom Parker is played by Tom Hanks. And this is arguably the first time Tom Hanks has not played a likable person since Road to Perdition. Or maybe Catch Me If You Can. But I'd be very interested to see how Tom Hanks interprets Colonel Tom Parker, who is both Elvis's best friend and worst enemy, both the best and worst things to happen to Elvis as a performer. But I'm very eager to see Elvis, and I will, and I'll let you know what I think about this movie on the next show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters is a movie that's called The Black Phone. This is a horror film, and it's about a 13-year-old boy who, after being abducted by a child killer and locked in a soundproof basement, he starts receiving calls on a disconnected phone from the killer's previous victim. Now that premise alone gives me chills. And this movie co-stars Ethan Hawke, but I don't know if Ethan Hawke plays the child abductor. He could, but all I'm being told from the poster is that it's a guy who's wearing this mask with a very creepy smile that reminds me of Milton Berle on Acid. Um, I'm very interested to see this movie. I don't know if it's going to be good or not. I don't know if it's going to be scary, but I will see it, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've given a spoken word preview of the movies that are subject to being released in theaters this coming weekend of June 24th, 2022, it's now time for me to get into my next segment of what's coming up next, which is where I tell you how many movies are coming out on streaming as much as possible. So we're going to start with Netflix. And there, are, there is one Netflix original film that is coming out on Sunday, June 19th. And there's also another film that I did not see that came out in 2017. And it's a movie that's called IT. This is a movie about a millionaire who's played by Pierce Brosnan, who has his life turned upside down after firing his IT consultant. Now, this is one of those movies that I missed when it came out in 2016 or 2017. But I'm very intrigued by it, and I would like to see it. I don't know if I'll review it for you on next week's show, but I'll give it my best shot. There is a Netflix original that's also being released on Netflix on um, Sunday, June 19th, and it's just in time for Juneteenth, a, mo- uh, a holiday that was not a federal holiday until Joe Biden made it a federal holiday last year, signed it into effect, and It celebrates the day that 
black people in this country were officially emancipated back in 1865. The movie that is coming out, that is coinciding on June 19th, is a movie that is a documentary, and it is called Civil, C-I-V-I-L. Its complete name is Civil Ben Crump. And Ben Crump is known as Black America's Attorney's Attorney General. And he pulls back the curtain on his life as a family man and a civil rights leader. Now, I don't know very much about Ben Crump. It's unfortunate that his last name rhymes with Trump, but it is very, um, shall we say, encouraging that he is the opposite of Donald Trump in his motivations, or so I presume. So Civil is a movie that I will see, and I will review it for you on next week's show. Also coming out on Netflix is a Netflix original that is coming out of China, And this is coming out on Monday, June 20th. This movie is called Doom of Love. And Doom of Love is a movie that, oh, excuse me, it's not uh, Chinese. It's actually an Indian film. And it's about an indebted Firat who, after his ad agency goes bankrupt, falls for a singer at a yoga retreat and joins her on a journey of self-realization. This, uh, my apologies for getting the nationality of this film incorrect, but Doom of Love sounds like a very intriguing film. I can't guarantee that I will see it, but I'll let you know what I think if I do see it on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released on Netflix on Monday, June 20th is a movie that's called Philomena, and that is not a Netflix original. It is actually a film that was released in theaters back in 2013, and it scored an Academy Award nomination for Judi Dench, who co-stars in the film alongside Steve Coogan. And Judi Dench plays a world... Oh, excuse me. Steve Coogan plays a world-weary political journalist who picks up the story of a woman's search for her son who was taken away from her decades ago as she became, became pregnant and was forced to live in a convent. This movie was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actress for Judi Dench, Best Musical Score, and Best Writing, because Steve Coogan actually adapted this movie alongside Jeff Pope. Now, I believe that I reviewed Philomena back in 2014 when I was first doing this show, but either way, I'm not going to review it for you next week because it is too old for my standards, unless I make some um, adjustments to what I review. But anyway, moving on to Wednesday, June 22nd, there is one film that is going to be premiering on Netflix, and that movie is called Love and Gelato, which is an Italian film, which is definitely a film that is both a romantic comedy and a culinary film. And it is about... Uh, a woman named Lena, who's played by Susanna Skaggs, who makes a promise to her sick sick mother that she'll spend the summer before college in Rome, which is a really hard promise to make. Uh, Do I have to go to Rome? (laughs) Where she falls for the city, the people, and the gelato. (laughs) It's amazing because I think you could fall in love with gelato no matter where 
um, you go. But Love and Gelato actually sounds like a very interesting premise. It sounds a bit predictable, but I'm going to give it a chance because God forbid somebody would spend the summer in Rome. (laughs) What a promise to make to a parent. I would love to make that promise to my parents. Yeah, I'll, I'll spend the summer in Rome if you really, really want me to. But Love and Gelato sounds like an enjoyable film, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. There are also two other films that are being released on Netflix on Wednesday, June 22nd. One is the 2007 horror film The Mist, And the other movie is Sing 2, which came out in theaters uh, late last year, 2021. But I didn't actually get the chance to see it. So maybe I will see it and I'll review it for you on next week's show. But the last Netflix original film that is coming out on Friday, June 24th, is a movie that's called The Man from Toronto. I guess the one and only Man from Toronto, because as we all know, not many men come from Toronto. And note my sarcasm if you haven't already. This is a movie that is um, actually a comedy, and it stars Kevin Hart and Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson is the titular man from Toronto, and he is apparently the world's deadliest assassin. And Kevin Hart plays New York's biggest screw-up, according to the premise, and they are mistaken for each other at an Airbnb rental which sounds like a very funny premise. And Kevin Hart has starred alongside more serious actors before and action stars. Like, for instance, he co-starred alongside Dwayne Johnson in Central Intelligence. But Dwayne Johnson isn't all that serious, and he wasn't particularly serious in Central Intelligence, but he and Kevin Hart actually worked together really well. I'm actually very surprised that this movie is not being released in theaters, but the movie also co-stars... Ellen Barkin, and Kayla Cuoco, amongst other people. So this is a movie I definitely will see. I hope Kevin Hart is funny in it, and I'm sure Woody Harrelson will be funny because Woody Harrelson is also funny when he's playing it straight as well, not necessarily when he's in comedies like, for example, um, Adventures in Zombieland, for uh, instance. But... The Man from Toronto is a movie that I will see, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke. And until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.